Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am Director of ECFR. And I'm Susie Dennison, Senior Fellow at ECFR. And together we're moderating this year's special summer series, looking at the special relationship between the UK and the EU, what we're calling the Great Reset. Here we'll be looking at the prospects for rethinking the UK's relationship with Europe with a series of guests over the summer. So for this special episode, we're delighted to be joined by David Liddington. David um, just told us before we started that he still holds the record as the longest serving Europe minister. And now that we've left the EU, it might be a record that he retains for for a very long time. He was Europe minister for six years and was incredibly distinguished in that role, but then went on to even greater things and was the de facto deputy prime minister of the country um, during Theresa May's period as, uh, as prime minister, where he was very involved in all of the different aspects of negotiating and and thinking through how Britain could withdraw from the the European Union. And since then, he's had a very important role um, as one of the the key voices in the debate within Britain about the UK's relationship with Europe, both within the Conservative Party, where he chairs the Conservative European Forum, but also as chairman of the Royal United Services Institute, as well as um, playing a really important part in a lot of the key bilateral relationships which the UK has as with other countries. So thank you very much for joining us, David. Thank you, Mark. Good to be with you. So, um, David, uh, maybe just to to kick us off, there's a lot of optimism in the air at the moment about the potential for a new era in the UK's relationship with uh, the EU. Um, What's your sense? Are are we being um, too optimistic when we start to think about um, the idea of a better deal with the EU than the current government has secured? I think that uh, that people are right to be pleased about the start of the reset in relationships that really began when Rishi Sunak agreed the Windsor framework with uh, the European Union, with Maros Shevchevich and, and Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, and, and that, I think, does provide the basis for a much more constructive, more friendly partnership. But I think we need to temper that, that sense of hope and optimism with a sense of realism as well. Um, you know, that, that uh, we ought never to have got into the place, frankly, where relations had be- become so badly damaged as they have been over the previous three years. Um, and it will take time to rebuild those. Um, I think if, if, if you look at the British press debate on our relationship with the European Union, um, people to some extent are still fighting in trenches that were dug in 2016. And a public opinion has changed in a big way, but but the partisans are still fighting old battles. And I think there's not sufficient recognition uh, on this side, my side of the English Channel, that um, the European Union and member state governments have all rather moved on since then, that they they regard the trade and cooperation agreement, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol, the whole lot as having been concluded, their international treaties. The important thing now is to get on and implement them. And by the way, we in the EU have got lots of other things we need to sort out amongst ourselves. You know, our budgeting arrangements, how we respond to Ukraine, how we deal with net zero, how we deal with the challenge of uh, technological transformation, the growth of China as an economic and political power in the world. And so the UK and their relationship with the UK comes quite a long way down the EU's list of priorities now. I also think that both my own party 
and the Labour Party, one of which is going to end up in charge of the government with a fresh mandate after the election next year, needs to think through what it is that we, the UK, would be able to offer to the European Union in order to get better terms in a relationship, because it will need to be a win-win for both sides. I mean, I, I can you know, produce a list of things. Well, go on. What, what, do you, what would you put at the top of the list in terms of, <laughs> uh, of our offer? Well, I think this week, I would think the wish list to the UK, would, it would, my, my judgment, would include things like uh, a veterinary SPS agreement. Uh, that would be sort of pretty much near the top of my list. Uh, one would like to have an agreement to move towards digital borders, because I think that that makes sense, frankly, not just UK, EU, but, but in terms of international trade more generally. And I think that's the way that technology and business would eventually drive us. But at the moment, I don't detect that there's much interest on the Brussels side of the, the fence. Uh, you know, we could be looking at um, some migration partnerships. I think some of those might be attainable. Young people, creatives and performing artists. We could be looking at mutual recognition of uh, professional qualifications. I, I mean, that was a tough enough ask when we were EU members. And I think um, sometimes you know, people underestimate quite how difficult a negotiation that would be now. Um, so there's a list of things the UK, I think, would want to be in UK interests to either add to or, or have alongside the trade and cooperation agreement. But I think that we need to you know, think through, are there things that we can offer, we say to you, you will get from us in, in return that will help you, help your, your prosperity, help the success of your businesses? And what do you think the offer should be? I mean, obviously, I think on some of those issues you're talking about, there are demands on both sides, on mobility, certainly, been a frustration. For- and I, I, yes, well, I think that the, the UK will be the smaller party in such a negotiation and will be in, in the diplomatic jargon, the demandeur in those negotiations, need to do the homework. We need to be talking to our businesses now and think, right, how can we make the case to uh, European governments, their prosperity, the profitability of their businesses will be improved if they have this sort of deal with the United Kingdom. And some of it, I think, is also about the additional weight that the UK, even though we're not now a member, can bring to bear in some of the global conversations that are taking place if we are willing to align ourselves more with uh, the European Union. You know, we're, we're, we're in a world, that's one of the reasons I was so strongly in favour of remaining in the EU, is that we're moving into a world where regional blocks and giant nations are going to increasingly to call the shots. And it's not to say a, a medium-sized prosperous country like the UK cannot have influence. We, we can, indeed, we do, as in the case with Ukraine. But, you know, I think that when you're talking about um, the debate on manufacturing standards globally, debates on environmental standards, debates on digital technology and whose system of digital technology, America's, Europe's, a combination of the two, or the Chinese is going to dominate most of the world in the future. I think it's an open question at Mm -hmm. the moment. And I think one could put together, if we do the homework, a good argument to Brussels and to member states saying, look, I know we're no longer members, but if you have find a way to which the EU and the UK can work together on some of these global issues to do with standards and regulation, that is going to be a benefit from you because our additional weight, our, our additional voice is actually going to help you to make and win that case. We're at the start still of rebuilding trust. So 
I am sort of professionally optimistic about these things because I think unless people are determined to be optimistic and actually make a real effort, then inertia will all too easily take over. But I think we've got to, we do need to, to, to have realism in our, and hard thinking. And in the process of building that trust, what role do you see, if any, for the strengthening bilateral relationships that we're seeing now between um, London and other key EU capitals? I'm talking to you from France. And I think that there was recently the, the first UK-French uh, summit in a long time, clearly a good personal relationship between Rishi Sunak and Emmanuel Macron. Um, what's your sense of, of how far that can be part of the, the UK cell in in, in diplomatic terms. Oh, it, it's an essential element. I mean, one of the things I learned as, as Europe Minister was the the way in which business, doing diplomatic business in Europe is partly transactional, but it's also relational. It's not just going down a, a list of items on the agenda, ticking them off one by one. And we'll agree to that. We want you to agree to this. In Europe, there's a lot that does hinge on relationships and on country understanding another country's, another government's priorities, its way of thinking, the pressures which it is under in its own politics. And they're preparing to make allowances when a country's vital interests are at stake and actually go, okay, we'll go along with you, we'll support you on that, we'll support your candidate for this international post. But I think you must understand that this matter is of key importance to us. Uh, And those conversations take place, they used to take place, obviously, including us, they still take place amongst 27 around the table in Brussels, in bilateral meetings, in corridors. They take place in the EU institutions as well in the caucus meetings at the UN or the OSCE and the other international organisations. So it's a constant conversation at different levels. And we need to find a way now to, you know, we, we can't, you know, not going to go back into the um, uh, the European Union. That'll probably be for my children's generation to decide when they're running the country. I think that the, the bilateral, so bilateral relationships with member states really do matter. And I think that what Rishi Sunak showed in concluding the Windsor Agreement that was that he was a man, a leader whom the other countries could trust, that they could rely on him to deliver what he agreed to do. And we've seen a, a very powerful message also with the effective gutting of the retained European Union law bill and with the scrapping of the Northern Ireland Protocol bill with that one certainly was an outright breach of Britain's international legal commitments. So he's he and the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, have both invested a huge amount of time in getting to know their fellow leaders around Europe, in showing respect to them, visiting their countries, as well as giving them hospitality here. I mean, you know, the, the generosity of President Macron's tribute to Queen Elizabeth and his attendance both at the funeral and then at the coronation of the, the present king that were noted here, made a big impression. The warmth of the German reception to King Charles when he went to Germany, spoke in the Bundestag, that had an impact on Britain as well as, you know, I hope, was you know, helped us uh, with German audiences. So those relationships are being rebuilt. And of course, on Ukraine... That crisis has reminded everybody of the issues that unite us, the common threats we face and the common interests we share. 
And actually, it's, it was, a, I think, a pretty salutary reminder to leaders in not just in the UK, but throughout Europe, that actually we need to spend less of our energy focusing on sandwich fillings um, in Northern Ireland and actually deal with these massive strategic issues, both political and economic, that are challenging us. Yeah. Be good to get on some of those political and economic issues in a second. But you spent more time than almost anyone in the world uh, working on these different bilateral relationships, both as Europe Minister and then as Deputy Prime Minister. And, you know, I think one idea that was tested to death over the last few years is the idea that you could somehow avoid going to Brussels and that you could just build great bilateral relationships with, with different uh, countries. And I think one of the reasons why Sunak was um, treated very differently in Paris from his predecessors is because he was willing to put in the work in, in around the Windsor framework and to, to do a deal with Brussels as well, which meant that member states were happy to talk to him. But I think you also got a very good idea of, of if you are going to try and move forward, not trying to go around Brussels, but to complement what we're doing with Brussels. You have to recognise it. I mean, the, just to put the go on, because the, and I can remember senior German officials saying to me that, you know, people have got to realise, you know, the Leave supporters who are running the government then have to realise that uh, you could go so far in a bilateral relationship with Germany, but unless you also have a good relationship with Brussels, with the Commission, you're showing respect to the European Parliament. Um, then there's a limit to how far you could go on a bilateral basis with us or with any other state. And so I think I do think that the respect that Sunak and his team have shown to Commission, in particular von der Leyen to Shevchevich, has been important. I very much hope that um, you know, Betsola has been over to to the UK, as you as as you know. Um, uh, I, I mean, I would hope that we can uh, you know continue to build relations with the European Parliament personally. As a still a paid-up member of the Conservative Party, I want to see the Conservative Party healing the bruised relationships with the uh, mainstream centre-right parties in the EPP as well. But that you know that that's perhaps sort of a party strand to to this, which, which I think Conservatives ought to pursue, whether we're in government or not after the next election. And so, if we basically looked at how you combine, so if we assume that you carry on showing respect and and engaging in a constructive, trustworthy way with the institutions in Brussels. How does one play the second part of that game, these bilateral relationships? Because obviously different countries have got different bilateral interests, some more minded to be helpful in some areas than others. For example, typically the, the French have been very keen to have a strong bilateral relationship with the UK, but are quite conservative about letting Britain take part in, in European schemes, whether it's you know, Galileo was a very good example of that, where they were taking a very hard line on Britain. Britain's ability to be part of that, even before the relationship got into the really troubled state that it was in um, uh, during the the, uh, the Johnson period. Uh, who do you think our British government can work with and on what kinds of issues if it's trying to get uh, allies in the member states as well as uh, as well as carrying on uh, building on the, the, the more constructive relations? That I think you have to work with each member state um, on those issues where you can define, identify shared, important shared interests. So if you look at the Baltic countries and um, Poland, Romania, then clearly it is security, it is the work to check and contain Russia and to support Ukraine, both by the deployment of hard power through NATO, but also through soft power assets that will help us most with those countries. I think 
with France. You know, we have um, you know, the Saint-Malo and Lancaster House treaties already. And I think you know, the French feel more comfortable dealing bilaterally with the UK on security matters. You know, why aren't we sitting down more with the French to be talking about Africa? How can we work with Germany more and France, but also countries in Central Europe on the Western Balkans? There, there are parts of the world and parts of the European neighbourhood. What do you think we could do on the Western Balkans as the UK? Because in the old days, we used to make the case for enlargement very strongly, but we're a slightly odd country to be making that case at the moment. I know, and I think, I think there is, that is an issue I think the EU has got to confront, that if they're not going to offer membership, then what is the strategic offer that they're making? Because I think without some sort of supranational European framework for that part of the continent... Um, there's a great risk of those countries stepping back. So, no, where one can work, well, it is it is much closer to the ground. It might be individual peacekeeping missions. I thought it was a mistake for the the Johnson government to pull out of um, of U4, you know, because they objected to you know, EU badges on the sleeve or something. It's ridiculous. I'd seen British troops in Bosnia, you know, helping with the aftermath of a disastrous floods in both in the Republic of Srpska and in the, the Federation. The, there's a still a very tense situation in northern Kosovo at the moment. But there are ways in which Europe, the European democracies can try to act as quiet interlocutors, conveners to bring people together. When Cathy Ashton was high rep, she spent many, many hours just getting to know those Western Balkans leaders and bringing them sometimes just to very private, secret, unannounced meetings so they could talk to each other face to face, in some cases for the very first time. Um, and it gradually meant that it was possible for those leaders to build up a relationship and overcome very deep mistrust. So we can do more of that. We can do more on governance. Uh, we can do more on trying to reform the judicial, prosecutorial and, and sort of political funding mechanisms in those countries. So it's quite granular, uh, detailed stuff. But I think we could be doing that. We could, UK could be helping in Moldova in the same way. And with Africa, we, we, there's a continent to the south of us that has huge opportunities in this century, but also where there are massive challenges. You have sort of jihadist terrorism bedding in right across Africa from the West Coast through to Mozambique and Tanzania. You have the, the Wagner Group in Central African Republic, Mali, Chad, Burkina. You have all kinds of problems uh, caused by misgovernment, disorder, civil war, aggravated by climate change, which are going to lead more people to want to migrate north, not fewer. So if one's going to get on top of that as a strategic issue, and it's going to take a long time, then if all the European countries have to work together. This is too big for any one country to, to, to address on its own. And if you're going to help African countries, then you have to work with them. You have to draw on each European country's respective history and network of relationships when it comes to Africa, as we did with Ebola. When Ebola broke out, the UK basically said, look, we will go and help Sierra Leone. We know that country. We understand it. The French did the same in Cote d'Ivoire and the Americans with Liberia. And it worked with the cooperation of those governments. Now, we need to be thinking in comparable ways to tackle, to help African countries tackle some of these endemic challenges that they now face, terrorism, 
drug trafficking, corruption, international crime, you know, the, 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 and it's in our interest that they do this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and coming back to your point on that sort of common assessment between the UK and, and other European partners about where there is a need for cooperation on these collective challenges, and um, you've talked about migration, climate change, and so on. In the Europe-Africa re- relationship at the moment, there's a lot of effort being put into sort of trying to join up a bit more of the European collective in the, in the conversation and, and trying to engage in, in ways that are that are more sort of cost effective and a sort of continent to continent um, level conversation. And do you see limits within the UK context on our on our ability to kind of work with that, or or rather, do you see that that we're potentially in a new moment um, in in terms of how this might fit into the global Britain approach? You know, we've seen the UK actively engage with organisations like the EP, European Political Community. Do, I mean, what, what's your sense on how far we can? Go on this front. I think in, in the Conservative Party, there is still a, a, a neuralgia in some parts of the Conservative Party about working institutionally with the EU, just as there is a neuralgia about the word alignment when it comes to sort of the economic cooperation with the, the EU. I think the Labour Party has fewer hang ups about those words. You know, they don't have quite the same history that Conservative Party's had in the last 10 years uh, on, on, on the European issue. But actually, you look at what the Sunak government has put in the 2023 version of its integrated review of security, it's filled in the Europe-shaped hole that was missing last time round. There are now warm words about cooperating with the EU institutionally and not just cooperating uh, on security and foreign policy matters with individual member states. There's even an explicit reference to working with the EU through some of the PESCO Arrangements. It doesn't mean we will sign up for every PESCO project, but uh, we've already signalled the military mobility we, we will participate in, and the door has been left open for other projects to be considered for UK participation on their merits. What I personally would love to see us move towards a, a structured security, uh, um, defence, foreign policy partnership with the European Union to complement NATO, which is going to remain the prime international organization for the collective defense of Europe. I think that it's probably a bit too early to turn that dream into reality. And we probably need to work out first, right, what are the projects where we can work together in different parts of the world? Ukraine obviously defines itself, Moldova, Western Balkans, particular African nations. These they seem to me the, the areas that are where they could be fruitful cooperation and where it is fairly straightforward to define where interests coincide. I think your approach makes a lot of sense to build from the, the from the ground up rather than to start with kind of big ideas about what a structured relationship might look like. But if you were to kind of um, look forward a few years and assume that it worked out practically in, in those different ways and that it was clear to both sides that they were able to do things that they weren't able to do before this cooperation happened. What kind of vision do you think one might have? Is you know, is it the idea that, that the UK might, well, you know, Macron's idea of the European Security Council or that the UK might join meetings of the PSC? Because it's pretty clear that the ways that the EU has traditionally worked with third parties have been rather frustrating for the third parties. And, you know, for a country like the UK that can meet a lot of these countries in other settings, whether it's in NATO or the G7 or the G20, it's maybe less appealing than it would be for 
for um for, for countries that have less options to work with other Europeans. I, I think the uh, ten years time. If you, you're, you're asking me to, to make that imaginative leap, then what I would like to see is an association agreement between the United Kingdom and the European Union that gave expression to what, what Theresa May used to talk about as a, a deep and special partnership between the, the, the UK and the EU. I think it would, such an agreement, it'd be a familiar legal structure to the EU. It'd be novel and it wouldn't automatically point towards accession, but you know, perfectly I mean, it's straightforward, I think, to to design such an agreement. And I could always remember Karl Hofstadt, uh, Giva Hofstadt, saying uh, in a uh, meeting uh, Downing Street that um, you know the, the beauty of an association agreement it's like a Japanese bento box. You can you have these compartments you can put into them as much or as little uh, as you want to. So I think a lot of it would be about foreign security cooperation, and you could have your sort of police security cooperation in, in one chapter. You could have your foreign policy and international security cooperation in another because obviously they fall in different parts of the EU treaties. Uh, and yes, I mean, ideally, I would love to see the UK as a non-voting regular member of the, the PSC. And I think that would make sense because it's idle to talk about a European common policy on defence, security, foreign policy, unless both France and the United Kingdom are involved. I know if either is absent, then actually it isn't going to be a proper European policy. Um, so I think there's a lot that could be done there. I think on the economic side, it is more difficult because, of course, the EU logic on its side says, well, if you're a member, you get certain things, you, you get the four freedoms, but you have to accept the limits that those impose upon your own freedom of action as a nation. And if you're not a member or not in the EEA, then it's a different relationship. And I do think that, well, I think Kistama, if he takes office next year, will align uh, UK regulations with EU regulations in a number of different sectors where British business is comfortable with that. And you know, that will bring some advantages in if he does that in reducing friction. It won't automatically buy better access to the European single market. And I think that's one of the mistakes the the Labour Party is making in preparing itself as it hopes to get into government next time and and actually not fully taking on board how protective the EU is about the difference between members and non-members of the union there. But, but, you know, one could put into an association agreement, you know, economic chapters, trade chapters and so on, you know, environment. It would be absolutely crazy. We, we both, Brussels and London, would be doing themselves self-inflicted uh, damage if we ended up with emissions trading systems or carbon border adjustments, which were incompatible with each other. All we would be doing is then adding to trade friction, creating yet another headache as regards Northern Ireland. And that's the last thing that we need. And if you look at it in terms of the global picture... We should be able to sort these things out as democracies are living next door to each other and then get on with the big debate, which is about persuading those countries in the world, which are much more reluctant to travel towards a net zero, to, to change their minds or to, to increase the pace of their change. So you were talking about some of the difficulties which um, which the Labour Party might have if they try and revisit it. I mean, they, I suspect 
would have some big advantages over over the last few conservative governments in the internal politics at the moment anyway is much less divisive and was when you were trying to deal with these issues I, I imagine the negotiations within the party were at least as complicated as anything which you had to deal with um, when you went to Brussels um, you're telling me Mark a, oh, you're, you're, you're awakening horrible memories in my I'm sorry uh, sorry to do that but um, so that that will presumably make their lives a lot easier uh, but what do you think they would find harder than they imagine apart from so you mentioned one really important thing which is this question that alignment on the regulatory side might not be enough to buy access to the single market. Are there other kind of nasty surprises which you think are an incoming Labour government? Well, I think, again, I, I would want either a Starmer government or a re-elected Sunak government to try to get migration partnerships with the European Union. Seems to me creatives and, and, and performing arts is one such group. I think that young people and students would be another. But Again, I think within the EU, particularly when they're under such pressure, uh, you know, so many governments are under pressure over third country migration coming from Africa and the, the Middle East, that they, there may be more reluctance than Britain thinks to about making special arrangements for any particular third country. I hope not. I hope we can overcome that. But I think there might be some difficulties there. And I think also that the people... You know, well-intended people on the Labour side, and more generally, some of those who've campaigned most ardently for Remain and who are now, even now campaigning for Rejoin, underestimate just some of the downside of, for example, going into the European economic area, or let alone starting accession negotiations. I don't think actually the EU is interested in accession negotiations for the foreseeable future. They, they want to see a consensus across British politics before they devoted time to this. So if you're in Brussels or Paris or Berlin, Berlin no point in having a, an accession negotiation with a new UK government if you think the government following them is from, going to be from another party which will come in committed to overturning whatever deal might have been negotiated. So that's not, not on the, the cards for the foreseeable future. But there, there is talk about the EEA, about trying to get back into the single market, and there would be advantages to the UK in doing that. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But the but is it would mean that we would limit what we could do, for example, in some of the new technologies and big data, uh, life sciences, GM, AI, where um, Sunak has a strong point in saying that we could get some first mover advantage by devising business-friendly regulations that got some of these new businesses to come to the UK and not all go to North America and China. We would also, if we were in the single market, but not at the EU table, not actually helping design the regulations, risk being in the position where, particularly on financial services, a decision could be taken with which all the EU were happy, but which was damaging to UK interest. I mean, the case I remember when we were there was on a banking uh, uh, capital requirements where the British wanted significantly tougher rules on the banks than the French and the Germans did. The French and Germans said, so you don't have to be so sort of tied up about, about, about this. You could be, be more relaxed about how much uh, reserve capital you want the banks to have. And we said no, because only in the UK is the financial services sector so important that uh, if banks start to fail, 
we face a systemic risk to, to our economic stability because they're big institutions. But George Osborne got a got a uh, you know a, a UK specific uh, exemption, the right to have tougher rules than the EU minimum. Now, if we're not at the table within the EU, as we're not members, then you just end up with whatever the 27 decide amongst themselves is right for them, but you have to implement it. And I think for an economy as big or di- and diverse as the UK's, it'd be much more difficult than it is for Norway or Iceland to simply accept you know, regulation by facts from Brussels. Okay. I think we're already over time, David. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, but there's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our, our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment? On my bookshelf, quite a lot at the at the moment. Um, so I have actually got um, two books to read, uh, which are, are relevant to our topic. I've got um, Professor Tim Bale's book on the Conservative Party after Brexit, and I, I've been lucky enough to get an advanced copy of... Um, the FT journalist Peter Foster's um, book on Brexit as well. But I am, I am for my own pleasure, um, I am reading through um, the, uh, about halfway through um, Patrick O'Brien's um, Aubrey Maturin series of, of, of life aboard um, British naval vessels in the, the sort of very early 19th century, so the Napoleonic Wars period. He, he conjures up the atmosphere of that time Absolutely brilliantly. So I will do that, and I will. Pro- and I have got a stack of books on Tudor history that I need to get round and read and do a bit of bit of writing now. Go back to my my old doctoral research and 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 um, try to work out how it was that Elizabeth the First's first minister, Lord Burley, remained in office, effectively prime minister for forty years. You know, he makes all recent incumbents look like very. Very short-term people indeed. Great. We'll put links up to all those publications on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to us, um, please head to whatever platform you use to download this episode and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating as it helps bring other people to the podcast. But for now, from David Liddington, myself, Mark Leonard and Susie Dennison. It's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Chiara Brika, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Sarat. Mm-hmm.